If you have your Bibles, please turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. As we shared last time, we're going through a mini-series on decisions, not mistakes, decisions. There is, as suggested last time, a downing, dumbing down of, of sin. And so you'll hear uh, from the pulpit, or you'll hear from Christian music, how we've made mistakes and how God forgives our mistakes. Getting the answer to a math problem wrong is a mistake. Dressing in an incorrect fashion is a mistake. Maybe investing in one stock versus another stock may be a mistake. That's not what I'm talking about. We all make mistakes. We're all human. But I'm talking about decisions that result in sinful conduct. And the first few people we're going to be taking a look at initially are people that you would say would not make these bad decisions, these decisions that lead to sin. Last time we took a look at who now we call Adam, the man who God created, who gave him a helper and placed him in an idyllic situation in the garden, and God walked with him. Yet he made a decision that resulted in sin. Today we're going to take a look at one who has been told that is had a heart after God. And yet we would say, well, he would make these no good, very bad, terrible decisions, but we're going to see that even he did. And next week, we're going to take a look at someone who we were going to would think would be too wise to make such bad decisions. The reason that we're taking a look at that is that because bad decisions is common to us all. It's not, well, this person is so smart, he won't make bad decisions. Or this person is so close to God that he won't make bad decisions. And so it is a warning for us all to see what not to do so that we might do what is to do and see where these decision points come where we would make a better decision. In David's situation, sometimes you make a decision and it seems to be inconsequential. His first decision, we'll see in in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel says, Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed at Jerusalem. David was not where David was supposed to be. David was supposed to be with his army commanding the field. Now, it seemed that this was not a consequential decision because it seemed that his commanders were doing a great job and they were having victory in their campaign, but David was not where David was supposed to be. And oftentimes we find people making great mistakes 
when they are either not where they're supposed to be or where they're not supposed to be the reverse of that. And you can see everything from the news or other things. When people are not where they're supposed to be, bad things happen. But you would think, well, this is a decision. He just decided to stay home. It doesn't seem to have consequences. All too often, though, the first bad decision doesn't have an immediate consequence. But it leads us to additional bad decisions. And that's what's going to happen to David. And so if you don't hear anything else beyond this point, when you're placed in a position where you're not supposed to be somewhere, leave. Or when you're supposed to be somewhere, get there. Because it's going to go downhill from there. So verse 2, it says, Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So because David wasn't where he was supposed to be, now he's placed in a situation where he observes someone who's beautiful, bathing. And so because we have a multi-generation, I'll leave the rest to your understanding. But he sees her. She's very attractive. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David is told she's married. It's not, it's not a mistake David is going to make. David has been told he's married. And he's been told who she is. She's not just some woman. She's Bathsheba. She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, they, he laid with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanliness, he returned to her house. Even though David knew she was married, David committed adultery. Now, I'm pretty sure, based on the fact that I'm also a man, that he probably, when he made a decision to have her, that he committed adultery in his heart because he desired her. So, you would say, well, Jesus said that if you can commit adultery in your heart, you are guilty of adultery. So you say, well, why not go ahead and commit adultery? I mean, you're already guilty, right? So go ahead and do the deed because you've been guilty. Here's the problem with that thinking. Not only does David commit adultery in his heart, he commits adultery. Not only does he commit adultery, now Bathsheba commits adultery. Not only now has Bathsheba committed adultery, he, David, has defrauded Uriah, her husband, from the sanctity, holiness, and intimacy of that marriage. So David is now not only guilty of adultery in his heart, he has committed adultery himself. He has committed adultery. In reality, he has defrauded and he's, in essence, caused Bathsheba to commit adultery, which under Mosaic law would say that she would, could be stoned and he could be stoned. Now, I understand he's the king. 
And even though we have this little saying in today's world, shows you how little things change. The rules apply to thee, but not to me. Okay, David didn't expect, I'm king. I get to do whatever I want. Now, David had a whole lot of wives. If he had that itch, he could have scratched it a different way. So what we see is, first off, when he sees her, guess what? Uriah is his neighbor. Because he can see her baby. So, so he has coveted his neighbor's wife. He has committed adultery. Two biggies in the tent. The woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. So now it is going to be obvious something happened because Uriah is with the army. Oops. So David does what most people do. Let's cover it up. Verse 6. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David, and when Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. Basically, David made stuff up. He was pretending to, wanting to know what's going on. So he could get Uriah there. So he's trying, he's deceiving Uriah why he brought him here. The reason he wants Uriah here is so he goes home. So then everybody will say, well, Uriah went home and, every, and it's Uriah's baby. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and from the presence from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord, and did not go down to his house. So Uriah is not going with the plan. Uriah decided to sleep on the king's door and not at home. Now when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David's going, uh-oh, my plan isn't working. So David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Go home. Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? He goes, I am going to not take advantage of this situation because my comrades in arms are out in the field suffering and working and I am not going to have the comforts of home while they are in peril. And then he goes on to say, by your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. He makes a commitment. He makes, says, I'm not going to do this, but so that you understand just how serious I am, I'm swearing by your life and your soul, I would never do that. Then David said to Uriah, stay here today also and tomorrow, and I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servant, but he did not go down to his house. David figured, okay, if I get him drunk, I can then get him to violate his convictions 
and go to his house. But Uriah is such a man of integrity, he refuses even in that situation. So David's lie has not worked. So David coveted, David committed adultery, and David lied. Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah, which is interesting. The very message is going to be taken by the man of integrity. He had written in the letter saying, place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So it was as Joab kept watch on the city that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there was valiant men. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab and some of the people among David's servants fell and Uriah the Hittite also died. So now David is responsible for murder. He didn't send him out to just do battle. He sent him out so that he might specifically die. That was his plan. Here's a man after God's own heart doing all of this. Then Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. And he charged the messenger saying, when you have finished telling all of the events of the war to the king, and if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall when they struck down Abimelech and the sons of Jerubbath? Did not a woman throw a upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Tezbeth? Why did you not go so near to the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead all. So he says, when all these things happen and, and we have this minor setback in this battle and we seem to lose this battle in a number of men, it's not because I was a bad commander, because I did what you told me to do. So not only has David committed murder, he has got others to do his deeds as well. His sin is growing and growing and growing. So the messenger departed and told David all of these things. Now I want you to jump to verse 27. Oh, well, let me go with verse 26. Now, when the wife of Uriah heard that her Uriah, that her husband was dead, she mourned for her husband. So she showed the proper respect for him. Something that I didn't say before, when David and her committed adultery, it says that she took a bath and cleansed herself. She didn't do that because she sinned. She did that because she became unclean. She became unclean because of the consequences of what they did. It wasn't sin. It was, if it was even a proper relationship, she would have been unclean. And so would David have been unclean. He followed the law. It doesn't seem that David did. 
If you want to know why she became unclean, talk to me later now. I'll tell why, but again, we have young ears here. So she, again, does, she follows Mosaic law. She then mourns in the appropriate time. And then David, having multiple wives, when the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. All of these things. It, David made a bad decision after a bad decision after a bad decision after a bad decision. Again, a man after God's own heart does these things. And David thinks, I'll fight. I've covered it up. He's pregnant. She's now my wife. No one will ask any questions because she's my wife. Her husband's dead. Nobody's going to know any better. Except the Lord does. Chapter 12. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said, Now Nathan must have come from, must have been a, uh, ancestor of my family, and I'm not Jewish, so he couldn't have been. Because my family loved to tell stories. That's how they told you what was right and what was wrong. So my mother would tell a story, which would have a moral to it. Rather than saying, don't do this, she would tell the story and, and that. So Nathan's going to tell a story. There were two men in one city, and one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. And it would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. This, I know some of you love your pets and, you, and you're convinced your pets are going to heaven. And you, you know, they're your children and, you know, and whatever. This, what he's saying is this lamb was a member of the family. They loved, this wasn't just a lamb. This was family. This is how much the story says that this family cared about this little lamb. Now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd, prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So rather than taking of his multitude of flocks to provide for this traveler, he takes the poor man's pet and uses that to feed the traveler. End of story. And the story has its desired result. David, then David, anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to the Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did not, he did this thing and had no compassion. Now, first off, David desires justice. How does four lambs and replace the one 
that you treat it as your daughter. Make it good. You can't. But David is looking at justice. And he's angry. And rightfully so. Because on this story, this person, this rich man who did this thing is reprehensible. Then Nathan said to David, now, I've heard some people say that they, they could see Nathan's bony finger pointing when Nathan says this. I, I disagree because this bony finger has a tendency to point three facts. So I go, I think he goes, you are the man. You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. So now Nathan is going to pronounce judgment. It is, a point, it is I who appointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if it, that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things than these. God's saying, I loved you. I cared about you. I gave you everything. I gave you riches. I gave you fame. I gave you power. I gave you it all. And if that wasn't enough, I would have given you more. And it sounds like how God has blessed us. And yet we're always, but it's not enough. But it's not enough. But it's not enough. Saying, I would have given it more. God is personal here. God is saying, you are a man after my own heart. And you did these things. You took a man's wife. And you killed him. So that you might not be discovered. And yet you had many wives. And I would have given you so much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? I outlined all of the commandments that David violated. He didn't just violate the commandments. He knew it and did it anyway. And all too, that's why I said it's not a mistake. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. He's saying these bad decisions that you've made is going to have irrevocable consequences. You are now going to be a man of war forever, the rest of your kingdom. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will rise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companions, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. What you did to Uriah's wife in secret, I'm going to have all your wives done in daylight. You want justice, David? You're going to get justice. But it's going to be done in daylight, not in secrecy. There's going to be civil war in your family. 
Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David's first right decision. He didn't try to excuse himself. He didn't seek to blame others. Well, you know, if she wouldn't have taken a bath up, up on the roof, I would. N- none of this would happen. He accepted responsibility. I didn't make a mistake. I sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also will take away your sins. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme the child also that is to be born, to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. Nathan basically told David, because you admitted guilt, God is going to spare your life, but he's not going to spare the life of the baby. That baby is going to die. Now we're going to see David's response. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David, so that he was very sick. David therefore inquired the Lord for the child, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of the household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. David is fasting and praying and prostrating himself because he wants God to change his mind. He wants God to spare this child. He's doing everything he can to get God to change his mind. And it happened on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead, since he might do himself harm? They're going, this guy was just grieving at such an extent. We're afraid to tell him the truth. Because if that's how he was when before the child died, how he's going to be afterwards. When David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived and the child was dead. So David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. God didn't change his mind. But David presented himself to the Lord and worshipped him. Didn't get mad at God. Didn't get angry. Didn't, well, if, if that's what you're going to do, God, then I'm going to. No, David worshipped God. Then he came into his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the, Lord, that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. David understood 
that he had the opportunity to try to change God's mind. God didn't. So he's going to worship him and he's going to go on with the consequences that God has laid out. Because David understood his sin and repented. The last scripture I want us to look at is Psalm 51. This is a psalm that, that David wrote. It's a psalm that I think you need to know about if you don't, and if you find yourselves in this situation of having sinned, this is an excellent psalm to read. Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Notice he said, be gracious according to your love, not to that I deserve it, but because of who you are. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He's asking God to cleanse him. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. All this I have done. It is always ahead of me. Wash me, clean me. Take care of my sin. Against you, you only have I sinned and done as what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. He goes, I deserve exactly what you said. I don't seek to justify it. I don't seek to say it was a mistake. I sinned against you. You're correct in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my in sin my mother conceived me. He goes, I grew up this way, and I'm still this way. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden parts you will make known, you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Come on. It's you, God, that can do this. I can't turn over a new leaf and become a new man. I need you to cleanse me and to wash me and to make me as white as snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquity. Here's, here's the great part of this song. Create in me a clean heart, O God. I once was a man after your own heart, and my heart became utterly wicked and sinful. Create a new heart, a new heart in me, a clean heart. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. There was a time when I would mock at those who would say anything about my God. And I was the one who violated his word. Give me that steadfast spirit again. Do not cast me away from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Now this is a line you need to memorize. He didn't say, Lord, save me again. Because once we are saved, we are eternally saved. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Nothing that we can do. But when we sin, we can take that joy away from our salvation. So David says, God, give me that joy again. I'm not asking for salvation because that is guaranteed, permanent. It's not what I do, it's what you have done. Give me 
that's joy. Maybe it's why so many people who go to church and, and sit in a pew seem to be so miserable. Because we don't have the joy of our salvation. And sustain me with a willing spirit. Have me keep on keeping on because I want to follow you, God. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Because they're going to hear about what I've done and what you've done in response to me, and they're going to say, I want to worship that God. I want to be forgiven. I want to have joy. What is it that I need to do? People will hear those testimonies and be converted. Deliver me from the blood guiltiness, O God, and the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Not of me, but of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. It's not about what we offer to God other than to say, God, cleanse me, change me, use me. By your favor, do good design, build the love of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the righteous sacrifice, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings then young bulls will be offered on your altar. We offer sacrifices to God not to get our sins forgiven, but to recognize what he's already done. And once we restore our relationship to God, then the sacrifices ought to come. You don't present your offerings during the time of offering and tithes because you're trying to buy God. You do it as a result of the fact that you know that he's already forgiven you, that you're following him, that you're doing what you're supposed to do. David is not where he is supposed to be. And it led to the destruction of his family, to the death of a man of integrity. It reminds me when in, in Hebrews it talks about men who this world is not worthy of. Uriah was not worthy of David. And yet Uriah followed him and did what Uriah did. But the story doesn't end here. God's grace is so amazing. God is going to take this relationship between David and Bathsheba. And there will be another son born. And that son will be king over Israel. And that son will be known as the wisest man who ever lived. That man will write Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. He will give us wisdom and understanding. God will take this sin and create something beautiful. His grace is amazing. If I were God, 
the last thing I'd have done is bless David and Bethany. If I were God, I'd probably never let David forget Uriah and Bethany. But not God. And when God, when David asked God to cover his sin, he did. And when we ask God to cover our sins, he does. Because his grace is amazing. Not a single person who's ever received grace ever deserves it. I don't care what bad decisions you have made. I don't care what no good decisions you made. I don't care about what terrible decisions you made. God's grace is greater than all of that. And all it's God's people said.